Well, many of you probably know at this time, this is kind of my final series here at the church. And uh, kind of life for us is going to change a little bit. And Deanna's retiring here on the 30th after 45 years plus of nursing. And uh, I, I put a, uh, a little thing on the screen for her. Just This is Deanna, Born to be Mild. You know that Born to be Wild song? Well, my wife isn't the wild type, as you may know. She's born to be mild, and she's going to get her scooter here. I was saying four-wheeler. No, she wants a, she, actually, I, th I think she wants a golf cart some, at some point here. But we're taking next steps. But in that, we're finishing with a series built on a verse that I think is so practical, so important. I don't want to put that on the screen. First Chronicles 12 from Issachar. Men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. Here was a group of men who understood the circumstances of the day and they knew how to make wise decisions based on that understanding. Now, that word understanding is actually a verb that means to break into its various parts, different categories, and then taking those categories, you can make right decisions that are based on wisdom. And this is intensely practical for every follower of Christ. It, for example, even when you think of our culture, understanding the culture and knowing how to live in this world. But it applies, I think, even wider than that. You think of every relationship we had. Uh, you think of marriages, parenting. And technically, it technically applies to the nation of Israel here. But this also then extends to a group of people. And we could extend it even, for example, to us as a church. And that's where I'm kind of going. How do we as a church understand what do we need to understand so that we can act and live right? Now, last week, one understanding that's so important, and I'll put it on the screen for review, it's this. The family of God must keep front and center the great commandment and the great commission. Recognize, a church rises and falls on the great commandment, these two commands. That first great commandment to love God and love people. It's about relationships, which a church needs to be about. But then it's that great commission. The idea there that Jesus took his, his men, he trained them, and he said, guys, I'm going to give you a mission, and what you're going to do is go make disciples. Why? Then you're going to build up and create a church. You're going to bring about a, the bride of Christ into existence. But that's the mission that all churches are supposed to be on. But I think those things are challenged at times, even to the churches in North America. For example, I, I think here one of the tendencies is that we want church to be kind of like a club, an athletic club. Go there, get my needs met, get my family's needs met, and you go, that functionally really isn't the heart of what a church is supposed to be about. But there's another issue that we need to understand that leads to, needs to lead to action. And it comes out of a couple verses here, and I'm going to put them on the screen. Ephesians chapter 4, first one. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, no longer children. And look at 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brothers, do not be children 
in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, look at this phrase, be mature. Now, what is the understanding here? And I framed it this way, number two, understanding number two. Churches and Christians must have a clear understanding of what is this term spiritual maturity. Growing up in the faith is another phrase. Now, I've taught this over the years, and this is a topic, frankly, that I feel sometimes people kind of bristle at. And why? It's because it holds up a mirror to our lives. And if you bristle at this topic, frankly, here's what I'd say. You probably got some work to do. See, the question, how do you define what is spiritual maturity? See, it's this. If you have no tangible definition, no measurement, everybody gets the right to decide what it is. Judges says everybody decides what's right in their own eyes. And that's also true of spiritual maturity. But I grew up in a church just like Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church. And I look back, and I think back, for example, to the early days where Deanna and I got married and we had a child, and we started our journey together. If I were to go back to that point, and someone were to ask me, Ken, what's spiritual maturity? I would have given you three things that would have defined it. I want to put them on the screen. It's this. I'm to be a good moral person who works hard to not sin. And I could say, check, back then. A second one, I'm to be a regular attender of a church. And Deanna and I jumped into a church, so check that one. And the third one, I'm to pray and read the Bible to understand truth. And I would probably semi-check on that one uh, back then. But see, the question, what is your definition today? Have you ever thought about it? Now, here's the the interesting piece. If you were to throw this question into a group of a bunch of pastors, a lot of times pastors really have never wrestled with it. They've They've never even struggled with it. See, when we use the word disciple, what is a mature disciple? Matter of fact, um, a while back, in, I think it was in April, a group of us began to meet, and we began to wrestle the part of the mission, the goal of that group. It was elders, pastors, and staff, and, and some other people. We were trying to make sure that we have a right pathway in terms of helping people move toward becoming a disciple maker, a, a mature disciple. But in that group, all of a sudden we were confronted, and, and the question was asked, somebody was helping us walk through this, and they said, well, what's your definition of maturity? A mature disciple maker. And as we stopped and paused, we realized that as a church, we really don't have a definition of what that actually means, what we're aiming for. And folks, this is more practical than I think we realize. Because think for parents, for you. Do you understand how crucial this is if you are a parent today? See, the question for you, what do you want your kids to be aiming for spiritually? What are you helping them move towards spiritually? Is it this? Well, you know, I got nine grandkids, okay? And, and it, it, as I look at my grandkids, do I want their spiritual lives, you know, when they become adults, do I want them to be kids that are morally correct, 
I go, yeah. Do I want them to attend church? For sure. Do I want them to read the Bible and pray? Yes. But is that the pinnacle that I have for my grandkids? So we met, we chewed, we looked at the scriptures. And now here's where I do got to stop and just, I got to interject just so we clarify one piece. I need to go down an alley. Um, Please remember, as we look at maturity, it is a journey. It is a process. And when you, matter of fact, when you think you're getting close, I think this is what happens. The Holy Spirit says, hey, now you've got to go farther. And recognize the journey of moving toward maturity will never stop and should never stop until we begin eternity. Okay, so we've got to keep that in mind. But here's what I want to do today. I want to show you what we've adopted as a church in terms of what is a definition of spiritual maturity. And some of you are going to look at this and go, okay, what about, you know, fill in the blank? We could have put a dozen things. But one of the concepts when you're discipling people and and giving people, you know, helping them have a definition, you got to keep things simple. And and I have a phrase called, it's got to pass the napkin test. What do I mean by this? It's this. When you're communicating a principle, it needs to be simple enough where you're having, for example, a cup of coffee, and you can pull out that napkin out of the holder and write down and basically define and help them understand it on a napkin. So that's where we come up with five different qualities of what is a mature disciple. And I recognize it's a mile high here today. We're not digging. Each one could be a sermon. But here's what we want people to be moving toward, a target. And I'll put the five on the screen here. First, intimacy with God. Am I daily deepening my relationship with God and eager to spend time with him through scripture, prayer, and worship? Jesus-like love, am I ready and willing to biblically love and engage with anyone God brings before me, including those hard to love? A disciple-making lifestyle, am I in intentional faith-building relationships with believers or unbelievers beyond the family, helping them to grow to become disciple-makers? Fourth, life-altering church relationships. Do I have deep relationships within the church that I believe are vital to my spiritual health? And the fifth one, joyful and sacrificial serving. Do I freely give of the first fruits of my time to serving, even when difficult and inconvenient? Now, here's the goal. And matter of fact, we wrote it, those questions, the form is kind of a question there. But the goal is to put up a mirror and it propel us to understand and then apply what steps then do we need to take and what, does, do, what do we depend on the Holy Spirit to do to change our lives, to be moving us in that direction. So let me put the first one up, intimacy with God. Am I daily deepening my relationship with God and eager to spend time with him through scripture, prayer, and worship? Now, I want to use a text. I've used this for years and years and years, probably about 20 years, and it's so pointed and so um, clarifies the different phases. Look how it reads, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. 
I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. See, in this, these couple short verses, three stages of the spiritual development. Children, young men. Now we could put young men and young women, very appropriate. And then fathers and we could add mothers, fathers and mothers. Three different phases of maturity. But again, when you think of everybody starts out as a child in the faith, that's normal, it always works that way, but Christ is going, don't remain there, you got to grow up in your faith, and you, and you move to become a young man, young woman in the faith, and there's three qualities in this passage if you, don't, if you didn't catch that. The word of God lives in you, I mean, even, there's something about the word changing you, giving you, but then it's strength, spiritual strength. And then overcoming the evil one. You're figuring out sin and Satan is really what's going on. But you got to catch that that is the middle category. And for years, matter of fact, for me growing up, that was the top category. But it talks about a father, or we could say mother. First, it implies that there's kids beyond there. That's one. But then there's this critical phrase, because you know him from the beginning, and it repeats it again, the same identical phrase for emphasis. And you go, what does that mean? Well, I want to show you a summary from a commentary that I use, and he just nails it. it he, he phrases it so well. Uh, look what it says. To know God was not merely to know him as a philosopher knows him, it was to know him as a friend knows him. In Hebrew, to know, that phrase, okay, is used of the relationship between a husband and wife and especially of the sexual act. The most intimate of all relationships. When John spoke of the increasing knowledge of God, he did not mean that Christian would become an ever more learned theologian. It meant that throughout the years he would become more and more intimately friendly with God. Spot on. See, it's not knowing about God. It's to know him, to love him. God becomes more valuable. The relationships goes deeper and deeper, and trust begins to flow to the Father, to God. See, intimacy is being drawn into the love with God and for God. And when love begins to defining, it becomes that defining relationship, feature of the relationship, one then begins to go, I got to please God. I want to please God. And the result then is that desire flows in another direction, and it's this. I want to begin to love others. See, intimacy pulls one into this second quality of spiritual maturity. See, functionally, it's the fruit of a relationship with God. So when intimacy goes deep, 
we begin to listen to the Holy Spirit, and it says this, Ken, Sally, Bill, do, do you know how much I love you? Now give it away. Give my love away to others. Look at the second quality, the way we phrased it, Jesus-like love. Am I ready and willing to biblically love and engage with anyone God brings before me, including those hard to love? See, intimacy with God propels us to want to love other people because he first loved us. Look at John chapter 13, a text that applies here. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, understanding, when intimacy with God is blocked, guess what? Also loving others is blocked or it wanes. But loving others functionally is not a matter of willpower. It's not just trying harder. It's the love of God being poured into our hearts that gives us the ability to love others. But we also must understand the radical nature of love. See, the truth is it's easy to love, the un to love those easy to love, the lovables. I think of my child when I was young. You love. It's easy to love those. But if you understand this, the reality is that God calls us to love the unlovable. Even today, I look at Christ, and when we goof up, maybe we're not walking with him right now, he still loves us. He doesn't give up on us. But let me show you a verse that I wish I could have preached, didn't have the time. I hope they pick it up in Ephesians in the future. 319, may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be, look at this, made complete with the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. See, the more we experience the love of Christ, the love of God, he changes us and he gives us power to love the unlovable. Now here's you ask the question, to what extent are we called to do that? Well, Jesus pushed at his disciples profoundly. Look at what he said, Luke 6.35. But love even your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Love our enemies, but did you catch the punchline at the end? God is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil people. So, we also are to reflect that same love to those that are hard to love. See, it's really quite hard stuff. We keep defaulting to, you know, knowledge as the basis of spiritual maturity. But hear this, if we can't love, or if one isn't inching in that direction, one is not moving towards spiritual maturity. See, we keep thinking, learn more theology. 
Now, do we need to learn it? Yes. But it's really, the function is for intimacy. But here's a tough question. Would people who know you well today say that your ability to love has grown this past year? Let's even push it farther. How about this? What if some government officials walked in here today who put some of the regulations that we have to adhere to and they came walking down here to what extent would you want to give them kindness or would it be I know that guy would we mutter under our breath our disdain do you see the radical nature that Christ is calling us to in the ability to love? But as intimacy grows, love grows for those that are easy and those for, that are hard. And when love grows, realize there is also another fruit. There's actually more understanding. And it leads to even more right decisions and actions. And the actions is this. You want others to know the one that changed you. And the result of the fruit of love is actually the next maturity quality. And it's this, a disciple-making lifestyle. See, am I in intentional faith-building relationships with believers or unbelievers beyond the family, helping them grow into disciple-makers See, the Spirit changes us. It gives us the capacity to begin to see like Jesus. And we begin to look at people and we go, we want them to be changed like Jesus. But that word lifestyle, it reflects not just an occasional thing. It, it's a, functionally, it's about a way of life. And if you look back at the early church and those disciples as they, as they were interacting in their world, it was a lifestyle for them. It wasn't a one-day-a-week thing. It was moment by moment. Matter of fact, let me show you a verse. It's one of the life verses. Deanna and I got this passage just drilled into us back when we were learning youth ministry when we were in our mid to late uh, 20s. And, and it became one of the verses that I used for parenting my kids. Colossians 1, 28, we, him we proclaim, who's him, Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Casually? No, no, look at, the, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul had to do this for the people that came into his life. You know, for when I was growing up in the church, here's what I understood. This is for a missionary. This is for a pastor. See, but the biblical understanding of discipleship means that everyone, that great commission, is to be involved in this process. See, Jesus modeled it, the lifestyle. Paul modeled it. Even those early churches, they modeled it. It's why the church exploded back then. You know, here's the, the, the other, maybe another piece to it. When I ask people in a class and just say, how many of you had another adult walk with you intentionally and help disciple you and you knew it? that they were pushing you toward Jesus. How many of you had one of those 
people? You know what the answer is? About 5%. That's about it. So somewhere along, the mentoring, the disciple-making just didn't flow out through the generations. But here's what we do. We recognize it's got to be intentional. See, this isn't just an occasional cup of coffee. Now, is coffee with people good? I love coffee. Yes. Matter of fact, it actually fills the need for relationship to do that. But maturity brings wisdom and intentionality and even skill that needs to get developed to that coffee partner that you have. You know, I meet regularly, though, with a number of guys and a number of couples. And up front, here's what I say. I make it very clear. My goal, if I'm going to meet regularly with you, I want to push you toward Christ, toward Jesus. And I'll use phrases like this. Remember my goal? Help you become a godly man. See, that's the kind of intentionality we're talking about. But let me throw an application question at you here, a hard one. It's this. Is our spiritual life worth imitating? Because oftentimes that's key in disciple-making. That's the essence. Now, I realize, again, as people look at my life, and do I want them to copy every area? No. Okay? But is it changing? Is it moving in the right direction? Is Christ's life being formed in me just a little bit more as time goes on? But see, that then flows into another quality. Number four, life-altering relationships. See, do I have deep relationships within the church that I believe are vital to my spiritual health? See, moving toward maturity was never meant to be done alone. The church is built on the foundation of relationships. But too often, when you look at relationships, there's fear, there's shame, and there's the past that people don't want and desire relationships in their lives. And even for some, I've said this before, for some people it's this, man, would you please love me, make me feel loved, but don't get too close to me. Don't touch the areas in my life that I might have to change in. See, that's true as well. There's a fear there. But see, growing deeper in Christ, relationships are mandatory. You know, last week, I mentioned there were 59 one another's in Scripture that apply to the church. And here's, here's the, the challenge in that, is that when we look at being fruitful in those one another's, it most often needs a relationship where trust takes place. You trust the other person. See, growing in relationships means going deeper with people. Uh, about a year or so ago, I mentioned four categories of relationships within a church. And I want to review those for you. The first one is this, acquaintances. We know their name, maybe. At least we recognize the face and we say hi. The casual, you know your name, and you can carry on a relatively spiritual conversation. You can even say, I'll pray for you in an area. That's casual. But then you get to those two categories of close and intimate. And here's the deal. Most churches stay at acquaintances and casual. 
Yeah, we, we figure out how to speak Christianese. I'll pray for you on the fly. But maturity understands this. I need people in my life. And it's necessary for my long-term spiritual health, for real change. See, real change most often is going to take place in close and intimate relationships. There's love and there's accountability and, and, and mutual understanding. Now, some of you do this. Well, my wife is my best friend or my husband's my best friend. But first, many of you are not married. And by the way, Paul says that you actually have an advantage in that. I just want to remind you of that. But if you're married and it says, my spouse is... Can I say this? This is a lame excuse. It really is. You know, I've worked with marriages for about 25 years now. And the marriage where a spouse can speak to every area of another spouse's life is rare to none. It just doesn't work. Folks, I need men in my life to watch me. They need to be able to critique my relationship with my wife from a distance and, and just observe. And if they see things doing that where I'm unloving, I need to know and they need to come and tell me. See, I don't want to put that burden on my wife. I need a brother to help me to hold up the mirror to my life. So here's a hard application question. The question is this. Do you have someone in your life that cares enough? And this next phrase, has the ability to speak toward the corners of your heart that you can't see. They're dark. See, more often, this person, though, is at least similar to where one is at spiritually, or they might be even a little farther down the line. Do you have that person in your life? And I go, why not? Let me go after one last bullet here. Number five, that fifth bullet, joyful and sacrificial serving. Do I freely give the first fruits of my time to serving, even when difficult or inconvenient? Now, this ties back, folks, to the first quality of our intimacy with God and the Father. See, when Christ is pouring his love into our hearts, the change is that love curves out, not comes back in. And it becomes about me. That's selfishness. Maturity is growing outward, viewing people differently. Serving is the byproduct. It's when a life curves out. It, it's not about my desires. It's about what can I build into other people. See, we see needs then. A number of months ago, I, I said this. It's becoming a man or woman of the towel. And, and I used a text, and I want to put that back on the screen again from John 13, where Jesus modeled serving for us. Look at what he did. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, it might be a nice idea if you wash one another's feet. Okay, no. Look at this. You also ought 
to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Do you feel the call? But let me couple this with Philippians 2. Look at what it says here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, values others over yourselves. See, when we begin to value others over self, guess what happens? We begin to serve others with a joyful and in a sacrificial way, even when it's not convenient. Now, I need to make a statement, an observation from years of ministry, and it might feel harsh to some of you. See, first, growing up, we were taught to serve functionally out of duty. That's what's modeled to, to me. Now, it's not bad. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to dismiss it because it actually is the starting point. But here's the observation that I've had. I've been in ministry now for about 27 years. The standard, the bar of what is acceptable to feel good about oneself, that I fulfilled the duty to serve, because we know we're supposed to. Folks, the standard of feeling good about ourselves, that bar has actually dropped over the years. For some people, I serve the church one hour every three months. Oh, I feel good about myself. I checked that off my list. I've served Jesus. But here's the question. What is the level of your bar that accounts right now? One hour a week, a month, two? See, looking back at my mom and dad, it's interesting because their bar was actually very high. They served neighbors, the body of Christ, but what my parents didn't get is that the bar of duty, no matter if it's high or low, is still serving out of duty. And it's not serving out of love and worship. And that speaks to maturity. So here's where I got to say one more hard thing. And Pastors feel like they get run out of a church by saying this. But since I'm already leaving, okay, I get a right to say it, okay? <laughs> um, something is deeply embedded into the American church in the United States. And in some churches, it's worse than others. And I want to put that on the screen for you so you, so you catch it. The greatest obstacle to creating margin in our lives to serve joyfully or even out of duty and to have deep life-altering relationships within the body of Christ is our families. It's the greatest obstacle to those two areas. The American culture, the family always comes first over the kingdom of God. See, I can't commit to life-changing relationships in the church. My family comes first. I don't have margin for serving faithfully, joyfully. 
My family comes first. That's functionally last week what Francis Chan was saying. It's the idolatry of the family. But here's my belief. It's one of the reasons, because we've headed down that path, it's why the church in the United States has so little impact and even a lessening impact on our kids that we're trying to raise and push toward Jesus. Listen, all the emphasis on the family, you may not know this, but the family ministry concept has been growing for about 15 years. The family, the family, and how do we train and equip parents to do, do the family? But here's the, here's the deal. If I go back when I started youth ministry 27 years ago, the percentage of kids that were walking with Christ is actually decreasing coming out of the church. About 35% when I was doing youth ministry were, were entering the adult world and they kept walking toward Jesus. Now it's about 10%, even with all the emphasis on the family. See, something's just not working. See, what is our definition, though, of spiritual maturity for, uh, for parents like myself? If it's not biblically sound, you don't, you're not communicating to your kid what is the goal, the target that they need to have. And I don't think we realize something, how much generational this stuff is. I've never preached a sermon on this. I've taught some lessons on it years and years ago. But if you look at the generational influence, it actually, to potential, most often to actually go in downward. David, whole heart. Solomon, half heart. Jeroboam, no heart. Three generations go in the wrong direction. You see the challenge for us. But even for myself, okay, we're, Deanna and I are stepping away from the body of Christ here. I know this, my kids will be watching. My adult kids will be watching. And they're going to be looking and going, is dad going to continue to walk toward Christ? And I think even the temptation for Dan and I, once we leave this place, is am I just going to watch church online so I can get some content and listen to some really good preachers that are a lot better than I am? Is that the heart of where I'm going to go? Is that the temptation? It's a temptation. See, what is the challenge for us as we look to the future? Do we need those things. I, I wanna, I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up, but why don't we put those five back up on the screen again, Steve? These five qualities, are we walking toward them? Some of them were doing better than others. I recognize that. But when you think of intimacy with God, what do you need to do today? Understand and respond. Jesus-like love, where are you at? Disciple-making lifestyle, you need to get trained, life-altering relationships. Do you need to take down the walls, pursue somebody, joyful and sacrificial serving? When we serve, we actually grow. That's the other flip side of that one. What are we aiming for? And maybe when we sing, we're going to stand and sing here, but maybe when we sing, maybe you just need to do some work in your own heart and just maybe not sing. You need to pray to God and say, God, I need to get serious today and start walking towards spiritual maturity. But these songs fit. We want God to change us and to move us. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's worship him. Sing to him. He's the one. He's the audience.